You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. During my college days, a good friend of mine, Richard, guy from Oklahoma, we made the 600-mile trip to Iowa during the winter for a weekend trip. We left right after class on Friday, got in my 68 Mustang and made the drive. And the further west we traveled, the worse the weather got. In fact, when we crossed over the Mississippi into the state of Iowa, we started to notice there was ice on the interstate. And it was only a couple miles after we realized that the things were getting icy that we found ourselves spinning around and around going down I-80. We came to a stop hitting one of these things called a night marker on the side of the road. That night marker hit the back of my car and punctured the gas tank. We were fine. We weren't hurt. But we were leaking gas on the side of the interstate, buried in snow up to our doors. And to make matters worse, we were two and a half hours from my parents' house, and this car wasn't drivable anymore. And I was sitting there on a cold Iowa winter night wondering, what are we going to do? Well, the first car over the hill after us actually pulled over, and the guy wanted to see if we were okay. This good Samaritan then offered to drive us to the next exit where there was a state police patrol station. And so we piled into his El Camino, and we made that short trip to the police post. And while we were there, he actually waited while I made arrangements for a record to tow my car out. And then, when we came out, he took us to the actual service station where the record service was. And then before he left, he gave us his phone number. And he said, if you guys need a place to stay tonight, you're welcome to stay with my wife and I. We don't live that far from here. Just give me a call. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Every dollar I had in my pocket, I had just a few, just about an hour or so earlier put into the gas tank and it had drained out on the interstate. I had no money. So my friend Richard and I ended up spending the night in the home of a guy we had just met 45 minutes earlier. That doesn't even begin to tell you all the things that went our way after that car accident. Somebody might say, man, you guys were lucky. That is so lucky that that guy came over the hill, right? You should have been playing the lottery that night because you were lucky. And i got to be honest with you. I didn't think luck had anything to do with it. I sensed that God was taking really good care of Richard and I that night. Have you ever had something happen in your life and boom, the solution came? The problem was solved. It seems almost improbable that the problem was solved and it, and it happened so quickly. It's almost, if you dare say, miraculous. It was as if the impossible had happened. And you thought, God surely must have been the reason why this happened. Or maybe you didn't think that way. Maybe you're a person who doesn't believe in God like that. 
Maybe you're not convinced that it was God who showed up at just the right time to make things happen just the way you needed them to happen. You believe that it was more likely just natural forces or what we would call, you know, dumb luck. How else could it be explained, right? Author Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, explains it this way. He says, randomness, luck, chance, fate. This is modern man's answer to the age-old question, why? Of course, if one dismisses the idea of God, then there is no other alternative. There's only two answers, God and chance. God and coincidence. God and luck. Those are the only answers. The Bible teaches that God governs the universe, all creatures, big and small, man and animals alike. First Chronicles says he's the ruler of all things. So if this were true, that he is the ruler of all things, it makes sense that we would put our faith and our trust in a God like that because he's in total control, right? So what does this faith look like? What is this faith? What is it? Faith is simply defined as believing that something is true and then trusting our lives to it. In the Bible, faith means believing in God, that he's true. And in what Christ has done for us to make our salvation possible and then committing our lives to that. True biblical faith is not blind optimism. It's not manufactured feelings to say, I hope so, I hope that happens. And it certainly isn't believing in spite of evidence. That would be simply superstition. No, faith means believing in God and in what Christ has done for us to make our salvation possible. And then putting our lives, committing ourselves to him. In Luke, the seventh chapter, if you have your Bible or your uh, smartphone you want to follow along, Luke 7, starting with verse 1, we find this remarkable example of faith. Kind of surprising, if you will. It's a story about the faith of a military leader who's simply referred to as the centurion. The centurion now was normally a Roman military officer who had charge over a hundred men. That was a centurion. This particular centurion probably wasn't Roman, though, because the Romans didn't have any soldiers in Capernaum when this story actually happened. Instead, it's possible that he's working for the Jewish ruler, Herod Antipas. It's also clear that he wasn't a Jew. He's a Gentile. The centurion also had heard about Jesus and the fact that he was going around from town to town healing people. You see, he sent word to Jesus inviting him to come to his house because this centurion had a servant in his house who was dying. And so he sent some Jewish elders to Jesus to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. It's kind of strange. A Gentile military commander sending Jewish leaders. 
He sent these leaders. They were probably from the local synagogue. These were the city fathers, Jewish community leaders. And they told Jesus that this centurion deserves to have him come and do this for him. Because he loves our nation. He loves the Jewish people. In fact, he said, he even helped us build our synagogue. Which would have been incredibly unusual at the time. A Gentile helping Jews build their religious center. But that's what happened. So as Jesus decides he's going to go and he's going to heal this centurion's servant, he's on his way and he gets close to the centurion's home when all of a sudden the centurion sent some friends to Jesus to say that he didn't deserve to have Jesus actually come into his home, to actually meet the centurion face to face. In fact, he hadn't come personally to meet Jesus because he didn't consider himself worthy Maybe this centurion was just being sensitive to some of the Jewish customs and principles that they just didn't hang out with Gentiles. But even more than that, this centurion seems to have an awareness of the great holiness that Jesus possesses. He had faith that Jesus could simply use this power that he had and give the word and his servant would be healed. We pick this story up in Luke 7, starting with verse 9. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. That statement Jesus makes in verse 9. I've not found such great faith even in Israel. It's a profound statement if you think about it. A Gentile military commander who felt unworthy to greet Jesus personally is the source of the greatest faith in all of Israel. Now hold that thought for just a moment and contrast that with this second story. Shortly after this meeting Jesus had with the friends of the centurion and the healing of the centurion's servant. We find Jesus in Luke chapter 8 in a boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep in this boat and a storm comes up on the lake. The boat began to take on water and the disciples sensed this incredible danger and they panicked. We read in verse 24 of Luke 8 says, the disciples went and woke him, that's Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Look at verse 25. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Jesus asked his closest disciples, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Jesus had just a few days before pointed out that the greatest faith in the entire country was the faith of a Gentile soldier, and now he asked his closest followers, the people who should know him best, who should understand what his whole purpose is about, They see this remarkable miracle, and they're stunned. It says they're in fear and amazement. 
But Jesus is probing them, saying, where is your faith? Where is your faith? These followers of Jesus had seen numerous miracles. They'd seen Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law who was sick. And then they saw him cast out the demon of a demon-possessed man. And then he healed a man with leprosy and then a man who had paralysis. He had been paralyzed. And then they were there when the centurion's servant was healed. And then they saw Jesus raise a widow's son who had died back to life. That's just the miracles that Luke records. After witnessing all of these miraculous healings and events, I'm pretty confident that they knew Jesus had supernatural powers. But they had no idea that he could control the weather. Think about it. They'd seen a phenomenal display of supernatural power. And now they were scratching their heads wondering, who is this guy? Who have we gotten together with in fear and amazement. With that as our foundation, I want to take a step and make a proposition. The proposition is simply this. God is in control, complete control. So we can trust him. God is in control. So you and I, we can put our trust in him. It's bankable. It's bankable. Why should anybody put their faith in God? Can't see him, can we? Why should we put our faith in him? I mean, I can see you. I can come down and I can shake your hand. I can high-five you. I can hug some of you. Some of you I wouldn't. But you, no, I'm just that way. But I can't do that with God in the same way I can do that with you. Why should we put our faith in him? If you think about Jesus' disciples, they saw Jesus do the miraculous. So it makes sense. It's clear why they would put their faith in him. They saw him calm the sea. We're reading about it. We didn't see it. They saw him. They would put their faith in him based on their experiences that they had with him. But do we just go on their testimony alone? Is that enough? Some of us might be surprised to learn that there are other sources that attest to the divine nature of Jesus and give significant reasons to put one's faith in him. The first of those sources is the historical record. There isn't enough time today to adequately review all of the historical record. In fact, we don't have time to even take a small sliver of a sampling of the historical evidence that Jesus is actually who he said he was, the Son of God, worthy of our trust. But for a few moments, I want us to focus on evidence surrounding the resurrection, kind of to the defining moment of Jesus being divine, God in the flesh. Jesus' followers claim that he had been resurrected from the dead. And that's a bold claim, if you think about it. And if it's true, it is maybe the most significant of claims. But there is evidence beyond their testimony to support that this actually happened. The first evidence is in the eyewitnesses. 
Think about this for a second. Some of you may even think about it somewhat cynically when you think, of course they would say Jesus rose from the dead. His followers, they would say that. His apostles, they would say that. They would make these bold claims that Jesus had been raised from the dead because theoretically they want to keep this thing going. But there is even more eyewitnesses than just the apostles. Those in that tight-knit group who followed Jesus for three and a half years. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verse 6, Paul writes this. After that, he, that's Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some had died. Paul said there were 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Dr. Edwin Yamachi was a professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio from 1969 to 2005. And he wrote about this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, from a historical standpoint, he said this, What gives a special authority to the list of witnesses as historical evidence is the reference to most of the 500 brethren being still alive. St. Peter, or excuse me, St. Paul says, in effect, If you do not believe me, you can ask them. Such a statement in an admittedly genuine letter written within 30 years of the event, is almost as strong evidence as one could hope to get for something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Think about this for a second. Imagine that you had 500 eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who, who saw the resurrected Christ. And you were given six minutes... For their testimony and their cross-examination. If that were the case, 500 who gave six minutes each, you would have over, you would have 50 hours of eyewitness testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's not the only witness. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian born in Jerusalem four years after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his proximity to Jesus, in terms of time and place, his writings have a near eyewitness quality, experts say, as they relate to the entire cultural background of the New Testament era. Josephus wrote this about Jesus. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it, be, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross... Those who loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. 
as a historian, Josephus was recording history, and being Jewish, he would have had nothing to gain to record this information about Jesus unless it was true. But probably the most powerful evidence of the trustworthiness of the divine nature of Jesus is found in the actions of his 12 apostles. All of them lived like Jesus had rose from the dead. They had all lived as if Jesus had been resurrected. All of them died martyrs' deaths, with the exception of one. That was John. The disciples, the apostles, lived like Jesus actually rose from the dead. That's how their lives can be interpreted. Why else would they do what they did? In John the 20th chapter, verse 19, we get context for all of this. Listen to what John writes. He says, On the evening of that first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they were just, they had just seen Jesus killed, and they were terrified because they killed the leader. Certainly they're going to go after his lieutenants, right? That's what they thought. Following Jesus, something happened that was so dramatic that it completely changed the lives of the 11 who were left. Judas is gone now. So much so that all of them, with the exception of John, would die because of what they believed, what they stood for, what they were about. That something was the resurrection of Jesus The disciples of Jesus did not go off to Athens or to Rome to preach Christ raised from the dead. The disciples went right back into the city of Jerusalem where if they were teaching, what they were teaching was false, their message would have been disapproved. The resurrection could not have been maintained for one minute in Jerusalem if the tomb had not been empty. Think about it. What happened in Jerusalem during Pentecost, just seven weeks after the first Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, the church is launched. Peter preaches this amazing Acts 2 message. And none of that could have happened if Jesus' body wasn't absent from the tomb. Otherwise, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem would have simply revealed the truth by making this little field trip over to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and they would have pointed out Exhibit A, the body of Jesus. But it wasn't there. And the apostles knew it because they had seen him alive. They didn't do this. The Jews didn't do this because they knew the tomb was empty. Their official explanation was that the disciples had stolen the body. This was, in in essence, an admission that the tomb was empty. And the result of all of this was that the followers of Jesus lived and died as if Jesus had risen from the dead because they had seen him risen from the dead. That's the only explanation that would change a group of guys who in John, John records they were terrified of the Jewish leaders. And now all of a sudden they're standing up in the center of Jerusalem preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. There's so much more historical evidence that would support us putting our faith and trust in Jesus. 
But I want to go on. There's a second reason to put your faith in God. And that is the promises that God has made. Think about this. God has made numerous promises in his word, the Bible. Now it may sound risky for some who might not believe that the Bible is from God. But you can read these promises and you can test God's trustworthiness. Does he actually, does he actually back these things up? In the Bible we find numerous promises, hundreds actually, that God has given to his disciples. And if you're a Christian... These promises were made for you. I want to give you just four as a sampling. There are literally hundreds. But four that are important to me, and I think they'll be relevant to you. I put them on your, your bullets, and I hope that you'll take some time to actually spend some time meditating on these verses. They're very powerful. Hebrews 13.5 says this. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God has made a promise he's going to be with you. No matter what happens, he's going to be with you. As a follower of his, he is with you. You bank on that. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God has said, I care about you. Think about that. The creator of the universe said he cares for you. Put all your anxiety, all your worry on him. He cares for you. John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He's made a promise that when you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and he's going to guide you through the course of life. Listen to him. He's made that promise. He's there. God in you. The hope of glory. And then Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate you from God's love. He always loves you. Always. Never forget that. If you're a follower of his, you need to remember that. Charles Spurgeon said this about the promises of God. He said, the promises of God shine brightest in the furnace of affliction. When will these promises be their most valuable? When you are facing your lowest valley. And it's in those moments, claiming these promises, that we gain the victory. When you trust God, you will find him more than faithful. Always. If you're a Christ follower, these promises are all yours. You have the immense blessing of knowing the presence and the power and the purpose of the eternal God in your life. Because these promises, they're true. We could spend a lot more time looking at promise after promise that God has made. Maybe we'll do a series on that someday. But take those four and meditate on those four. And then as you go through Scripture, you may want to highlight, hey, here's another promise that God has made to me. There's a third reason, though, that I want to give you to trust God. And that is the testimonies of those who are trustworthy. You know, stories are important to us, and testimonies are just that. They're stories from people who have had incredible, and sometimes some might even call miraculous events, God at work in their lives. Testimonies give us insight about God as we see things that have happened in the lives of people we trust. And I was trying to think of one person, one story 
that kind of summarize this. I'd love to spend a week spent telling story after story after story because there are thousands of them. But the one that has stood out to me throughout most of my ministry is the story, the testimony of George Mueller. That name may not be familiar to you. Let me introduce you to him. George is not the handsomest of guys. He's one of those people whose testimony, though, gives tremendous insight into the faithfulness of God. George pastored a church in Bristol, England, and he also ran a number of orphanages in the 1800s. He prayed without telling anyone about what his needs were. The only person he revealed the needs to were God. If you think about it, this is the ultimate experiment in faith. George Mueller was trusting God only. He had no plan B. The children are dressed and ready for school, the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. But there is no food for them to eat. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited George knew God would provide food for the children as he always did. And within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon after that, there was another knock on the door. It was the milkman. His milk cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George Mueller just smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk, just enough for 300 thirsty orphans. Throughout all the years overseeing the orphanages, Mueller never made requests for financial support, and neither did he go into debt, even though they built five orphanages over that time. Many times, he said, he received unsolicited food donations only hours before they were needed in order to feed the children. Further, just strengthening the faith of God that George Mueller had. George was constant in prayer that God would touch the hearts of donors to make provisions for the orphans. All of this evidence, historical promises God has made, testimonies from people like George Mueller and others. Some of you might look at this and go, it's somewhat of a coincidence. You were just lucky. Just like that guy coming over the hill and stopping. I mean, you were really lucky. Somebody might think that all of this is just coincidence. It's luck, it's chance, it's, it's fate. It's the forces of nature. I like the response of William Temple when he made a comment following someone's questioning what he called the answers to prayer. He replied to his critics who had regarded his answers to prayers as no more than coincidence by saying this, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, They don't. There are a lot of reasons 
to realize that God is in control and that we can put our trust in him and he is more than worthy of our trust because of his incredible faithfulness. The more you look, the more you will find just how faithful God is. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we are blessed from now on till eternity comes for us. And there is one promise that stands out above all the others. It is Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are no longer held accountable for your sins because when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He washes them all away. You're forgiven. Jesus, simply put, Jesus is the answer. Whatever the question is, whatever the problem is in your life, he's the answer. If you have tried all the other methods and you found them lacking, if you've gone down other paths only to be disappointed at the end, isn't it time to trust Jesus? Let's be honest. What do you have to lose? There's plenty of evidence to show that God is in control then why don't we put our faith and our trust in him? Let's pray. Lord, you have gone to great lengths for us, for all of mankind. And many of us have missed it. The world has deceived us and we have been confused and many need your love and your forgiveness, but they're not convinced that you even exist. And so they're not turning to you. I pray, God, that the evidence will be revealed that you are real and that you can be trusted, that you'll encourage them to take a step toward you. Lord, I know there are some who pray today because they've kind of lost that sense of confidence in you. I pray, God, for hope that they'll put their faith in you. They'll rekindle that faith in you, Lord. Help us all to live a life that looks like what we believe or say we believe. Help us to live lives that look like Jesus rose from the dead. Lives that have boldness and courage and confidence. Lord, help us to live lives like the disciples that were willing to put it all on the line for the sake of what we say is true. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus.